this sutta, the Hemavata Sutta, is a unique sutta because it falls between the very well-known double suttas uh, that we have as the beginning of the sasana, the Buddha's teachings, meaning uh, the first being the setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion, Dhamma Chakapavattana, and the one that comes usually right after. Um, and that is the Anattalakkana Sutta, where we have the non-substantiality or non-self being promulgated by Lord Buddha. In the first one, we have a Venerable Kondanya attaining Sotapanna, the very first hum human being. And next we have the, um, five days later, we have all five students attaining Arahanship. That it was also the reason, that motif was the same reason why I chose to keep them back to back. One week we did Dhammachakka and then the next time we did the Anattalakkana. However, in between, there is this slender sutta called the Hemavata Sutta, which we uh, 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 covered today. And, and that is uh, sutta from Sup Sutta Nipata number 1.9 from the Kuddhaka Nikaya. So there are these two yakkas that uh, are having a conversation. Yakkas are lower category devas, if you will very powerful. They are given these titles of generals and things. And you have examples in the Atanatiya uh, um, Sutta, you have the Mahasamaya Sutta and other suttas where they really stand out. Many yakkas are protectors of the Dhamma because they are practitioners, but many others are not. So these two figures in this sutta, Hemavata and Satagiri, are yakkas who are very much dedicated to the Dhamma because of their past uh, work that they've done on themselves. So the uh, background starts with uh, taking into account the time of the, uh, Lord Kassapa Buddha, where his dispensation is still there and he had just went into Parinibbana. And um, you, Parinibbana is the death of the Buddha, basically, and he had his relic um, built and uh, constructed, they constructed a huge stupa, pagoda, um, square shaped, each side being uh, one yojana, I think. Yojana is about seven miles, they say, uh, in, in length. And uh, you had two individuals, two friends who come and pay respect to the relic of Lord Kassapa Buddha. They are so moved by the energy, by the, what was being said about Lord Buddha Kassapa, who had just died, whom they had never met, that they decide then and there to become bhikkhus. And they become bhikkhus, these two friends. And they after becoming bhikkhus, they go to the elders and they ask as to what are the responsibilities of being a bhikkhu. And the teachers say there's two. One is the vasadhura and the other one is pariyati dhura. 
which is the responsibility to practice an insight, wisdom, meditation. And the other is the studying of the Dhamma deeply. So being young, uh, they say, well, uh, we still have many, many years to go. We don't have to go and, 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 and sit in a forest and just meditate. Why don't we go ahead and become bookworms and learn and learn and learn because that's what we like to do. And that's what they do. And years and decades pass and they become two old bhikkhus, but experts at Vinaya, the code of discipline of monks. So uh, meanwhile, they're getting a lot of support. You ha they have huge amounts of, uh, of, of gifts, offerings coming to them by the laity, especially. At that time, there were, uh, was a, a certain bhikkhu there were many, but there's one that pops up as the main problematic character in this. Um, and he happens to be breaking the rules left and right. Um, he was not living the life of a bhikkhu. He was pretending only to be living. He wasn't keeping any of the precepts or the rules. But he was somehow getting away with things because he would always buy his way out. He would bribe some other bhikkhus who were there and they would always close an eye and say, it's okay, or just pretend that they never saw it. When you have the presence of such characters at any age, what you also have is a true virus, a venom, a venomous snake that is living in, in your own household with your, with your children running around. But there is a black mamba, if you will, one of the most venomous snakes. And that's why Lord Buddha had instituted rules. That's why we have the Vinaya to begin with, to protect the sasana, especially the Dhamma, from becoming corrupted and impure. This person was making it very corrupted and impure. So there was one bhikkhu who had the courage to go up against this other very affluent bhikkhu with more vasas and said, you can't do this. You have to stop. You have to leave the sasana because you're bringing in bad influence. You're corrupting the sasana. So there's this quarrel that goes on between these two bhikkhus and the young one says, I'm going to go and let the Vinaya masters know about this and they will surely come to a, a, a reasonable conclusion and get rid of this nasty influence. And the other one quickly preempts him and he goes and meets the elders prior to this other bhikkhu. And he does so with uh, some uh, strategy. So, and so he's very cunning and things, but he also takes many, many gifts and offerings to these two elder bhikkhus, the two friends, if you recall. And then he kind of sweet talks his way in and says, hey, you know, there's someone who's going to come and complain about me. Please, if you could make your vote uh, be uh, favorable to me. And they say, we can't do that. We can't, we can't be siding because we would be practicing, you know, it, it would not be legal. It would not be ethical. And he says, well, at least if you could just keep quiet then, which is equally as bad because when action needs to be taken and a person shows inaction, 
that can be just as dreadful and bad as the action itself, if not worse. And lo and behold, after they get all their gifts from this bhikkhu, he leaves, the other bhikkhu shows up and uh, he presents his case and they listen, but they don't make a ruling. They remain quiet. Now everyone knew that what the bhikkhu was saying was true, but they were sitting in the room with this huge elephant and no one wanted to acknowledge it except for this one bhikkhu. So he was the only one who was defending the Dhamma, defending the Sasana to be specific. But they, the elders remain quiet and he gets so heartbroken and he says, please don't touch any more rules to, to try to intercede and try to uh, convene any meetings because you both are corrupt because today Lord Buddha Kassapa died. It's today that he died because you have just killed the Sasana with your silence because you needed to have taken action, but you didn't. And he's heartbroken. As he leaves, the other two bhikkhus, the old ones, they actually wake up, but it's too late. And they don't actually, um, not just too late, but they don't, they become remorseful, but they don't act on it because now they're still protecting their image. Uh, well, what if we come out and say something now we're going against what our position was. So might as well just remain quiet for the rest of our lives. And that's what they do. And they die. But because of that very serious, uh, uh, hurtful uh, act, uh, hurtful against the sasana, corrupting it, because that person still went on and influenced and let a lot of people lose their faith in the sasana. And that's what happens when we do have corrupt teachers and characters running around in the world of the sasana today. And we're always going to have that. Even at the time of Buddha, we had it. Plenty of them. So they die. These two bhikkhus, these old bhikkhus die. But unlike the, their supporters, who were many of them, as I said, lay people, they become uh, reborn in the deva realms. These two highly knowledgeable, dedicated bhikkhus for many, many vasas, they end up in the lowest of deva realms. They end up as yakas. And yakas, they have this, this uh, fondness towards devas because they don't look pretty. The yakas look mean. And you probably have seen depictions in, in Chinese uh, sculptures or drawings in, in different uh, Buddhist countries. They are mean looking, you know, uh, general type uh, people um, with thick, thick eyebrows, you know, angry looking um, compared to very soft outline devas and, and, and pleasant sounding. Uh, so they realized the reasons why they ended up as yakkas. And uh, one of them, well, both of them, as being so dedicated to the Dhamma and having already 500 disciples each, they become yakka generals with 500 soldiers each, soldiers of yakkas. So they have a following. So, um, and the commentaries say how one of them, Satagiri, was uh, reappeared as a yakka in the region within the Madhya Pradesh, a middle country of India. And his friend, Hemavata, whose uh, name is, is there on the, as the title of the sutta, 
was reborn in the Himavanta uh, region, which is where the Himalaya mountains are, northern part of India, as Hamavata Yakka, along with his own 500. Now, because of their attachment or connection, rather, with, to the Dhamma, they make this allegiance, they make this pact among them, this contract, if you will, where they say to each other, please keep your eyes open. If in any era, because they live for very, very long periods of time, we miss this opportunity to, opportunity to meet a Buddha, let us keep our eyes open just in case we get lucky and there's another Buddha that appears in our time. And there are signs that appear. So if you see the signs, please rush back to me and let me know, and I will join you. And if I see signs, I will come and let you know. Now at that time, uh, where this sutta is taking place, it is the same day where Lord Buddha has just taught the Dhamma Chakka Pavartana. And it was in the Madhya Pradesh, which is the middle country, which is the domain of Satagiri, one of the Yakkas. So you, Satagiri goes there with his 500 retinue of Yakka soldiers. And he's sitting in Anjali, he's listening to the Dhamma talk, where Lord Buddha is giving the, uh, setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion, teaching the Four Noble Truths to the five disciples, along with multitudes of uh, of uh, Brahmas, Devas, and Yakkas listening. So he's there too with his 500 soldiers listening, but his mind is like, oh, my friend, where is my friend? Hemavata. I wonder if he's here in the crowd listening too, because this is big. This is a Buddha. Now they had already missed the signs of Siddhartha Gautama's birth. They also missed the signs of Lord Buddha becoming awakened. But this time, Satagiri had not missed the sign of Lord Buddha because there was so much commotion in the Deva realms, in the Brahma realms. Everybody was coming to earth and to listen to the Dhamma Kapavattana being taught for the first time. So he couldn't miss that. He was very alert to it. But unfortunately, he gets up and leaves before the Lord Buddha finishes his Dhamma discourse to the five bhikkhus. He goes for the purpose of getting his friend, Hemavata, to come, to join him. That's how much dedicated he was. He was more dedicated to his friendship than to the Dhamma, basically. Um, the commentaries, uh, some of them say how he, if he had actually sat, he would have become a Sotapanna right there, if not more. But we don't know. So he goes, uh, towards his friend in the Himalayas on his way. Meanwhile, Hemavata, his friend, the Yaka, he's in the Himalayas and he's looking around the mountains and all the fields and the beautiful um, sides of mountains are covered up in flowers that don't bloom, especially at that time of the year, because this was around June, July. So, and fragrant thousands of miles of just beautiful colors. So this is like, he's like, this is turned into a deva realm. This is not usual. He says, something is happening. So I have to immediately remember this friend. So he says, I need to go and let my friend know Satagiri. So he gets up with his uh, yaka friends 
followers, and he goes towards Satagiri, and Satagiri is headed towards him to the Himalayas to meet his friend. So they meet on top of the city of Rajgir, uh, modern day city of Rajgir. And this is where the sutta is taking place. And, um, and they're conversing the dialogue between the two yakas. So um, the sutta is um, that we'll be covering today is Hemavata Sutta, and it's from Sutta Nipata 1.9. And um, the larger grouping of it, where Sutta Nipata happens to be the fifth book, um, the larger umbrella Nikaya is the Kuddika Nikaya, or the minor sayings, minor discourses. So this is the conversation uh, that is taking the, uh, place between the two Yakka friends above the royal city of Rajgaha or Rajgir, uh, between Satagiri or Satagira and uh, Hemavata. The first one to speak is Satagiri. Today is the 15th day of the Uposhata called out the Yakka Satagiri of Mount Sata to his friend Hemavata. A holy night indeed is at hand, my dear friend. Come, let us now both go and see our peerless teacher, Gautama. It's very clear that the voice of Lord Buddha is still reverberating in his mind, in his heart. He's like, let's go, let's go. I just cut the discourse in half. I was listening to Lord Buddha giving the Dhamma Chakapavattana discourse because I thought of you, Hemavata. You need to hear this. This is the sign that we were- Recording in progress. We were talking about. And uh, so he's saying, friends Hemavata, uh, Hemavata, please don't be confused. This is a real situation. We might have come across false teachers in the past, but this is really, this is it. This is the real deal. Let's go. Um, but he knows his friend is a little bit more uh, doubtful. Very, uh, Hemavata, by the way, was, um, the commentaries say he was much more uh, learned when it came to the Dhamma in his understanding. So uh, he is going, we're gonna discover how he likes to ask probing questions from Satagiri, his friend, and later on from the Buddha himself. So he's saying, have no doubt, he is the Buddha. We missed the opportunity with Lord Buddha Kassapa we only saw his cremation. We were so inspired, we became bhikkhus, yes, but we never got to hear a living Buddha speak. This is it. Let's go. Let's not waste time. You must come and see. Humans, devas, yakkas, brahmas are all gathered paying respect to Lord Buddha. Meanwhile, Hemavata says in his mind, wait a minute, this is a very bold statement my friend is making. Buddha, now? 
well what are the signs what 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 is this what give me some clues give me some evidence to support your claim that's what he's going to be ending up doing if we're talking about a buddha and uh, this is his response to uh, his friend satagiri friend satagiri can your teacher keep his mind well disposed towards all beings equally is he balanced does he have preferential treatment basically does his mind shake is your teacher well disposed to all beings without any discrimination responded the yakka hemavata to his friend satagiri does your teacher exercise his power and control over his thoughts restraining them to only what is desirable while refraining from all that is undesirable does he is he able to do those things basically he's asking do you know for sure your buddha is impartial between even his own disciples and other people and by the same token can he keep control over his thoughts is there metta basically in his heart is there mudita in his heart mudita is the altruistic joy where you look at beings around you and there is no separation you see them equal compassion is there compassion in him towards all and when you look at the life that lord buddha has had he had the same attitude towards even his arch nemesis his enemy devadatta make himself an enemy but devadatta that person who tried to kill lord buddha several times lord buddha looked upon devadatta the same way that he looked at his own son rahula imagine so this is uh, for us to know also that this is not easy to be able to look what someone's doing to you yet still maintain that now uh, maintain that position that you are compassionate towards them lord buddha even before he died he uh, declared that despite what devadatta had done despite the fact that he was in hell and is going to be there for an eon eventually he was climb up he was to climb up and be able to become a uh, pacheka buddha a buddha a silent buddha one day to have that clarity of mind requires a person to be of such a level that only buddhas are able to maintain so hemavata is asking his friend well does your buddha does your teacher have the tadiguna which basically the are the three aspects of of thoughts in a sense of uh, the thoughts that are uh, drenched in sensual sensuality thoughts that are drenched in bitterness 
resentment, and thoughts are, that are drenched in violence. So do you see any, some, any, any element of that in the mind of the Buddha? And Satagiri says, friend Hemavata, our teacher, the Buddha, looks upon all beings with equanimity. And he exercises his power and control over his thoughts, restraining them to not only, uh, restraining them to uh, to only uh, what is desirable while refraining from all that is undesirable. So his mind is looking at kusala and akusala. And if you remember, uh, well, we haven't covered the, the Veda Vitaka Sutta, but um, we'll do in time. When Lord Buddha, he was still Siddhartha, he looked at his mind as he was cultivating it while being a yogi. He saw that there's two types of thoughts that are running in the stream. He saw that there are thoughts that are unwholesome, akusala, and there were thoughts that were kusala, wholesome. And he made the decision to put the thoughts that are matching in character, meaning the unwholesome ones, in one pile, and the ones that are matching in their wholesomeness in another pile. And he said, from now on, I'm going to go ahead and just look at those wholesome thoughts and focus on those and just apply those and never look back. So uh, in that sense, when you are focusing on the wholesome, you even transcend dwelling on the desirable or the undesirable. This is where it gets to be equal. You're no longer swayed by, oh, this person is a foe, this person is an enemy. This person is my friend, that person is an enemy or someone who has bitterness towards me. So I should treat them differently. Because the moment we do that, we, the moment we have that attitude in us, that creates agitation in the mind because now we are applying preferences. And the mind of a Buddha does not have that anymore because they have maha upekka, which is equanimity at its perfection. And if the mind of the person has equanimity within it, there cannot be any room for preferences of, I will treat you this way kindly and I will treat you badly because you did that to me. So, uh, so the mind of the Buddha is equally disposed and impartial towards everyone. Um, now, sometimes people can mistake and mistake this by thinking, oh, it's, it's, you're just like a vegetable. People are going to walk all over you. Is that what we're working towards? No. We still have to live in a conventional world. We have responsibilities towards our body, what we put in it. So there's a difference between, let's say, picking up food that is nutritious versus one that is poisonous or one that could... Uh, affect the doshas or the constitution of the body. So you will say no to this and yes to that. That is not what we're talking about. 
is there residual impact on the mind because of these interactions? Am I carrying anything with me from these different activities that I'm involved in? Lord Buddha was seeing people who were coming and yelling at him or, or uh, saying abusive words. And then you, he had multitudes of people who would come and pay homage and circumambulate, walk three times around him before they left out of respect. So you see the dichotomy of treatment that he was receiving, this huge discrepancy. But in his mind, it didn't even make a dent. <laughs> it didn't really matter, ultimately. Now, that doesn't mean that he was not aware who was respectful and who was not. So I just wanted to make that um, subtle uh, distinction there. So this is, uh, let's continue. Friend Satagiri, does your teacher take what is not freely given? So now that he established the fact that the mind is calm, he's now interested in, hmm, how about his sila? Does he keep sila? Does he take what is not given? Now, this is Hemavata talking. Uh, how is his self-control? How does he behave towards other beings? Does he live carelessly? Is he negligent and heedless when it comes to practicing his jhanas? So now we're getting to see, now he's getting interested. Hemavata is, is like, okay, he, you can sense in him, it's kind of bubbling. He's like, oh boy, this might actually be a Buddha. But let me make sure. Let me ask these other questions. Let me, you can already figure out their personality differences as, as they unfold these, 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 uh, this, this conversation pieces between them. Um, so is he the teacher that you, you have, the Buddha? Um, does he have attachment to things? Does he have control over his thoughts? Well, you said yes. Well, how about his behavior? Now, it might sound strange to hear these questions come up, but we need to look at these questions in the context of what was happening in their contemporary India of that time. What I mean by that, you had people like Purana Kassapa, you had Nigantanataputta, whom we met several times, the giant leader, Mahavira. You had a slew of other characters who were calling themselves Buddha, who were calling themselves Tathagata. These were not terms that Lord Buddha came up with, by the way. So Mahavira would call himself Tathagata, for example, even though he never had any of those qualities. But you had these people like Purana Kassapa and others um, uh, who were claiming these, you know, bombastic things about themselves. But these yakkas were very privy to what was happening in these individuals' lives. They knew their deepest secrets. <laughs> because as a yakka or a deva, um, depending on their level, they can probe and they can see the, our mind. They can see our secrets. They can see our thoughts, how we think. So Hemavata was not coming from a, 
just being an extremely doubtful person or just being an argumentative uh, friend here. No, he's using what he has encountered as, okay, is this what we're going to see in your Buddha here? And Satagiri says, friend Hemavata, our teacher does not take what is not given for he is fully restrained with self-control behaving with loving kindness towards all beings. The Buddha is far from being, a care, uh, being careless, and he is neither negligent nor heedless in his practice of the jhanas. Talking about the jhanas, um, about attainments, is one of the easiest things you can, one can do. Uh, but practicing them is a totally different story. Here again, does his behavior match his claims? Um, you know, that's what Himavata is asking. Or is he a fake? Before I go, I need to know if he's a fake or not. And that is a legitimate question that every student needs to ask. Uh, several months ago, we did the Sutta Vimansaka, if you recall, uh, the investigation or examination. This is very pertinent, this sutta, to what was covered there as well. This attitude, which oftentimes we, we don't see in students. Again, this is not being argumentative. This is just trying to see if the person is genuinely wanting to see, not to try to uh, poke holes and the teacher, whoever that teacher might be, lay or monastic. I mean, isn't that what we do already in our lives when we are looking at someone as a potential friend or a potential mate or a potential career path or a job or a house even or a car, something we need to commit to? That is what we see uh, in Hemavata. And he is asking many of the questions that we might have asked also. So he's also representing um, students who are looking for a teacher. Uh, friend Satagiri, is he the kind of teacher who speaks falsely? Asked Hemavata further from his friend. Does he use harsh or violent words? Does he slander against anyone? Does he spend time engaging in idle or useless chatter? Sometimes some individuals while giving Dhamma talks or being Dhamma teachers, when you catch them at a certain time uh, while they're giving a Dhamma talk or in their own personal behavior, time, whatever, casual, you see a different person come out. That is not something that is to be seen in a Buddha. And we are all trying to emulate Lord Buddha, trying to um, chisel our characters according to his. So this can also be uh, um, to discourage certain individuals from behaving in non-Dhammic ways, uh, whether playing with your toes uh, while you're giving a Dhamma talk, um, talking about nonsense, when it is supposed to be about the Dhamma, 
So keeping the focus on the Dhamma is essential throughout. Because when we start talking about this or that, chances are, so long as the person is not an arahant, the mind will become deluded with the idle chatter portion of it because the mind is no longer on what is being said. There's no sati. That's why you're playing around, you know, doing pedicure with your own toes while you're giving a Dhamma talk, which is pretty deplorable to watch because Lord Buddha never did that. And you're starting to talk about other things, politics, this, that. We try to stay away from those things as best as we can and just focus on what is the message. That's another reason why he's bringing in, is there idle chatter, useless chatter in your teacher? Have you witnessed that? Friend Hemavata, he is the kind of teacher that never speaks falsely, replied Satagiri. He does not use any harsh or violent words. He neither slanders against anyone, nor does he spend his time engaging in idle or useless chatter. For he always speaks with discernment, saying only what is necessary and wise. The Buddha didn't take a time out from being a Buddha, you know. He didn't you know, slide his time card of being a Buddha and then, okay, now I can relax. I can be myself, not to trivialize Lord Buddha. But we need to look at it not as a part-time thing. And similarly, we need to emulate those quality, qualities, characteristics in our lives to the best of our ability. Not just as monastics, by the way, as lay people as well. That's why you are practicing the five precepts at the very least, which does say so much in bringing you closer to that character or a set of characteristics lived by Lord Buddha. And then he asks, friend Satagiri, is he not given to any sensual desires? Is his mind unperturbed, no longer chasing after or indulging in sense pleasures? Asked the Yakka Hemavata. Has he overcome delusion? Does he possess the eye to see through all phenomena? Uh, many of the, again, Lord Buddha's contemporaries were indulging in sensual desires. They had preferences when it came to food and um, the kind of gifts they received, etc. And also uh, carnal desires were there present because there's no sila. So he's asking again, are these the qualities that you're talking about? Are they the same as what we see in Purana Kassapa or Nigantanataputta? And his response is, friend Hemavata, the teacher is not given to any sensual desires, replied Satagiri. His mind is unperturbed, no longer indulging in or chasing after sense pleasure. He has overcome all delusion and he sees the true nature of all phenomena with the eye of a Buddha. The eye of a Buddha, you know, it's, it's the perfection, right? Um, it needs to in, in, uh, capture several other eyes, if you will. 
So of course, uh, the commentaries break it down into uh, five. Uh, so of course you have the Buddha eye, which is like the, it envelopes everything else. You have the physical eye, you have the Dhamma eye, right? The ability to see the Dhamma. Uh, so you have to be an Arya, a noble disciple at least to experience that Dhamma eye. Um, then you have the Dibba Chakku, which is the divine eye, which we talked about, I think last time, the ability to see, uh, to go beyond the laws of physics, to see what is not reachable or seen by the physical eye, biological. Uh, you have the Panya eye, which is the eye of wisdom. Um, because not every Arya, uh, not every noble disciple, even though they have the, divi uh, the Dhamma eye, uh, they don't necessarily have wisdom. Um, that comes with more and more work in insight, in practicing meditation, insight meditation. Um, that's why there's called, uh, there is the liberation through wisdom. There's that. And not every Arahant or, or noble disciple will be going down that path. So, um, but the Buddha has all these five in them. Um, so just to, to, so the physical eye, the Dhamma eye, the wisdom eye, the Dibba Chakku, the divine eye and the Buddha eye, just for all those who were interested in knowing what is that, the eye of a Buddha. And uh, Hemavata says, friend Satagiri, is he a master of knowledge? Now he's really excited because he was very much in his past life as the Vinayadhara was very much into learning and studying the Dhamma and the Vinaya. So that was his domain. That was his territory. So he's like, is your Buddha into, is he, is he a master of knowledge? Basically, can I go and ask him questions? Does he possess perfect purity of conduct? Are all his mental contaminants all destroyed? The asavas, are they destroyed? Is he a full arahant, basically? And is he bound for any more renewed existence? Which basically says, is he still caught in samsara like us? which if the answer is yes, then he's not a Buddha. We're not talking about a Buddha. Let's go somewhere else. So he, he now you see his eagerness to really have his friends say, yes, he has purity of character. Yes, he is a master of knowledge. Yes. So he's like, yeah, he's, are we, you know, almost like a child who's going to go to the toy, toy shop or a candy store. And we're going to have this. We're going to go that. We're going to do this, that, that. Yes, yes. So <laughs> that's how I, what I'm seeing here. Uh, so he, they know now that they are not going to be missing an opportunity, basically, as they have missed it at the time of Lord Kassapa Buddha. And Satagiri says, indeed, friend, he is the great master of knowledge. While adding, he is the one possessing perfect purity of conduct. Having destroyed all his mental contaminants, he now lives finally freed, no longer bound for any more renewed existence. There is no Pono Bhavika. 
which is that desire to constantly want to manifest in a new form of becoming, if you will. I know last week we briefly touched on that. Uh, the great sage's heart is flawlessly exquisite. Whether one witnesses his, uh, witnesses his speech or deed, you see it in his action or is in, in his words. You can't miss it. He's not fake, basically. Uh, sometimes I've had students ask questions about so-and-so teacher in this. And without getting too much into it, I would just like, listen, you're not supposed to be put in this precarious position to constantly analyze whether your teacher is true or not. Do his words match his behavior? Basically. If they don't, then you're not dealing with the genuine article. Lord Buddha was the genuine example. So as teachers, um, that needs to be the drive we have, the, the compass that we work towards. Being fully accomplished in both knowledge and behavior, my dear friend, Gautama is the very teacher possessing the qualities you hold dear and praise. So now he's, he's saying to Hemavata, uh, the qualities that you appreciate so much, he has them. He has them. Lord Buddha has these qualities. Being fully accomplished in both knowledge and behavior, my dear friend, Gautama is the very teacher possessing the qualities you rejoice in wholeheartedly and celebrate. Not just praise, but rejoice in. Being fully accomplished in both knowledge and behavior, my dear friend, let us now go and see Gautama, the only one who possesses the purest knowledge and behavior. The silent warrior whose slender limbs are like those of an antelope, eating only a little, with a heart that knows no lust for food. He now sits meditating in the great forest all alone. Let us now go, my friend, and see Gotama. By the way, th these last words were spoken by Hemavata. He looked and he saw that Lord Buddha was sitting in the forest quietly meditating. And he's like, okay, we're going. Let's go. Let's go. His arms are like antelopes. They're not as big as, you know, mine. <laughs> they're, they're slender. They're, you know, he eats only a little, he says. It's only been seven weeks after his awakening, by the way. So he was starving for six and a half years or so. But the way he describes him, we, we so appreciate these words that we get 26 centuries later of Lord Buddha, these tiny little data, these details of make him more human for us. It's just remarkably beautiful. And um, Hemavata continues, and by approaching, and, and by the way, Satagiri will not be doing much talking after, after this point. It's, it's Hemavata, as we see. He's taking charge in a way in the sutta as it unfolds. And by approaching him, who is the lion among men, the bull elephant roaming and living alone, 
beyond the trappings of sense pleasures. Let us ask him on how to liberate ourselves from the tangle of death. Let us be free from this sansara, sansaric existence, he's saying. Let us go ask Gautama, the teacher, the guide, the expounder of meanings, who has overcome and gone beyond all things, for he is the Buddha, having overcome all fear and hatred. So now they're heading off towards sadhana. But what I didn't mention earlier is that this sutta is also known for something additional, something quite unique, in fact. As you recall, I said these two yakka generals and their retinue of 1,000 yakkas were having this discussion above the city of Rajgaha, Rajgir. Meanwhile, there was a woman, a human being. Her name was Kali, Kali actually. And she had been married after she reached, a, she came from a wealthy family from the city of Rajagha. And she had been married and um, to, um, uh, to a man in a city of Kuraraghara, I think. And, uh, but she had become pregnant. So to, for the last few days of the pregnancy, she had come back to her family's home. And they had this uh, mansion, and um, it was very hot. This is happening around June, July, so it's it's, it's hot in India, and um, so she is pregnant. It's it's the last you know trimester. She's really in pain, and it's hot. So she goes up the terrace. And she opens the doors, these large doors. In India, they have these beautiful, long, long, slender doors. When you open them, it allows the breeze to come in. So she goes to the top level, the terrace of her family's home. She opens the terrace, and there's these um, parasols, these wide, white fabric parasol type of thing to reduce the sun's heat. So she's getting all this soft, cool breeze coming in as she overhears this conversation going on between the two yakas overhead. Now, some people living in the 21st century will say, oh, come on, this is just too mumbo jumbo, Bhante. I'm sorry, but I can't. That's perfectly fine. But there are things that you know, we cannot, you know, empirically test all the time in a lab. What I mean by that, a person's punya or merits are exceedingly important. And Kali's punya were, well, had reached a, a level of maturity, shall we say. Because at that moment when she came outside, she was able to really tune in and hear this unusual sound, series of sounds that were coming in. And she pa patiently, faithfully tried to understand what was happening. And she, according to the commentaries, she locked on and she heard, but not only heard, her heart opened up. She developed such an intense faith 
that she experienced tremendous joy in her heart. The kind of joy that you experience as you're going through the jhanas, and specifically the joy that one sees as the midpoint of the satta bhujangas, the seven factors of awakening. So all of a sudden, these things were coming up because of her past work that she had done on her mind. Here, at this point in time, on the terrace of her parents' home, while pregnant, <laughs> um, as she's hearing this conversation, the accolades, the the discussion about what the Buddha is, what qualities he has, her faith blossoms to such a point where she becomes a Sotapanna. And she becomes the first female on the planet at that time to experience the state of nobility. Uh, so she is the eldest sister of, of, of womankind on this planet, human. Um, and remember, uh, Anya Kondanya was, uh, had just uh, um, experienced it five days earlier. Um, actually, no, that day uh, earlier. Uh, sorry, I went to the Anatalaka. So it's a, it's a wonderful uh, story. And uh, because without even having met the Buddha, she became a Sotapanna. Mm -hmm. Think about that. So when I hear people come and say, Bhante, yes, these are good suttas. I like the suttas, this and that, but how are they related to me? They're not, they're not. I can't see myself. Why not? You don't necessarily, we don't necessarily have to be living at the time of Buddha to taste the fruits of the Dhamma. Just remember, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of people approached Lord Buddha during those 45 years. Not everyone saw the Dhamma, you know. Not everyone became an Arahant. You had a lot of lousy people, a lot of bad people coming to Lord Buddha. We like to think only about the good ones. Yes, of course. The Arya Savakas, the noble disciples, but we forget. And here you are sitting on a Saturday, and uh, it's, it's the faith that we need to work on in opening up the mind, allowing, allowing, constant allowing. Whenever the mind goes into tightness, that's the craving. Whenever we go into like, I want this to happen. Why isn't it happening? That's arrogance. That's conceit. That's ditimana the conceit of wrong views. I, this is all about me, not you, me, myself, I. That is ignorance. But to have faith also means to open that and trust, trust, trust. Constantly, the purity of the Dhamma. So there's a lot of allowing taking place. So, um, so that is uh, one other uh, very crucial part of the sutta um, that needs to be acknowledged. So then the two Yakka generals approached the Blessed One and after paying homage to him stood at a respectful distance and Hemavata eagerly addressed the Blessed One with a question. So here now they have the 1000 Yakka disciples 
And this is happening around uh, midnight uh, at this point, uh, I believe. And the commentary says that the Lord Buddha had not left his sitting position since the time that he was giving the Dhamma Chakapavattana in full lotus. So he hadn't left his seat, they say. So Hemavata goes ahead and asks, how does the world arise, Bhagavan, Lord? By means of what association is the world maintained? By grasping onto what does the world become afflicted and with what? So by asking this question, uh, because he was so much um, rooted in, in knowledge in his past life as a bhikkhu, he wants to gain the answers that he never got. He only saw them in suttas, but he wants something valid, something tangible for him. So he's asking, what is the beginning of, of, of lokas, basically? Both uh, sankara lokas, things, conditioned things, and as well as uh, uh, sentient beings or satta lokas, or, you know, humans, devas, yakas, animals, all these beings. Like, what is the world um, originated by? And what is it maintained by? And what is its affliction, the cause of its affliction, meaning affliction meaning uh, the cause for its stress, its, its, its distress, its suffering. So in a way, you can understand where this is going to go, having you know, Lord Buddha having just given the Dhamma Chakapavattana. The world arises in six, answered the Blessed One to Hemavata. It is maintained through association with the six. By grasping onto the six, the world becomes afflicted with the six. Now, remember, this is Sutta Nipata, so there's a lot of verses uh, that you find. And what I didn't mention earlier is that the Sutta Nipata, this collection of suttas, is, comes to us from the earliest days of the sasana, meaning Lord Buddha himself had said these, had, had, had validated them, and the monks and nuns knew verses from these suttas. And they would sometimes recite them chant them. And sometimes Lord Buddha would test them um, if they know Dhamma. And when they said Dhamma, it would be in reference to the suttas found in the Sutta Nipata. So it's the oldest that we have. So the sixes. So obviously we're talking about the Alayatana or um, the, um, in this case, the uh, internal uh, sense organs, the six which are, uh, we've gone over this many times, but for listeners for the first time, we have the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and the mind as the sixth. And uh, as their objects, we have their, their um, on the receiving end of it, uh, you have, uh, or what gets picked up, you have sights for the eyes, you have sounds for the ears, you have uh, smells, orders for the nose, you have tastes or flavors for the tongue, and you have touches, tactile uh, objects for the body, and you have uh, dhammas or uh, thoughts, uh, 
phenomena for the mind as the sixth organ. So it is the interaction between these two that brings the world into being. That's what Lord Buddha is saying. Um, so that, that interaction also brings with it, so long as it is based on uh, ignorance, which is craving. If you recall last time we were talking about Chitta, how he pointed out, it's not the black ox nor the white ox, but the yoke between the two. And the black ox was, let's say, representing the internal sense organs or bases. And then the white ox was representing the external, the objects of these senses. These two on their own, they don't necessarily do any harm. They're just there. It's the yoking of them both that is the problem. And that is our craving to attach this notion of this, this drive of this is who I am. You and I are one and the same. Identification, basically. I like this. I despise, I hate that. Get it away from me. All these indicate that the 12 ayatanas, the six bases and their, uh, their, their objects, the 12 ayatanas, and in, in, uh, you probably have come across it in the Pachitsampada, uh, Salayatana. So these, these uh, in this case, the 12 are always burning burning. I like, I don't like, I like, I don't like, I don't care. I like, I don't like, I don't like, I, I like. That's what's happening on a continuous basis. So when we say monkey mind, well, what is the monkey jumping from branch to branch to get to? It's running from one branch, jumping from one branch, which it does not like, to grab hold of the mango on the branch that it wants. The mango could be anything. It could be uh, a delightful thought. It could be a delightful touch, a flavor, anything. But by constantly jumping back and forth, we get the burning, the monkey mind, or the heart. And because in connection with the sixes, you, I think it would be also good for you to, if you can, um, go to uh, check out uh, from the Majjhimanikaya 148, uh, the Chachakka Sutta, which I've recorded in the past. And it's, it's a wonderful, it's very terse, it's very <laughs> methodical, but it's a wonderful sutta that really drives the sixes home for the mind to kind of settle in. And it's a wonderful meditation tool, even if you can sit with it. So, uh, Hemavata still asks, uh, what is that grasping by which the world becomes afflicted? So grasping. I ask that you look at it in terms of, four, of the four noble truths here. Grasping, attachment. Grasping, attachment, right? So we're talking about Upadana here. And um, we're talking about the Samudaya. What is the origin of suffering? Becoming afflicted is the suffering. So by asking about the origin of suffering, which is the second noble truth, he's of, of course acknowledging the presence of the first noble truth. That's why he kept on bringing up the word afflicted. Do tell us about this release when asked, 
How is one freed from all suffering, Bhante? He's asking the question, Lord Buddha is giving the answer. He already gave the answer when it came to the Alayatanas, the six senses. But he wants more. You can tell that he's very driven by knowledge and, and you know, he wants to get things conceptually as much like supported as possible. So what is the factor basically he's asking that brings in samsaravatta, which is the, the round of suffering? Um, what is that extraordinary dhamma that can pull us out of suffering? He wants to know that. Uh, so he's, he's now going with the how, which is the way, right? The how, the method, what? The fourth of the noble truth uh, system. And the blessed one replied, five are the kinds of sensual pleasures in the world to which the mind is added as the sixth. When there is no more longing in the heart for any of these, then one is completely freed from all suffering. This is nirodha satcha, which is the cessation of truth. When the heart is no longer longing for these sense pleasures, so long as the person is able to apply samaditi, samma sankappa, samma vacha, samma kammanta, the, the right um, view, right intention, right speech, right actions, etc., Slowly, slowly, and that manifests in you keeping the sila, by the way. Every time you keep sila, you are practicing the Noble Eightfold Path, which is, as we discovered in the past, Noble Eightfold Path has an equal sign between it and the Middle Path. So basically, Middle Path is the same as the Noble Eightfold Path. So when you are practicing, even the very first of your sila, daily pancha sila, you, you, you take, the training of, you are practicing the Noble Eightfold Path. You keep doing that, you will hit cessation of suffering. That's what Lord Buddha is saying. So the journey is not about the outside world, fixing the world, being out there and relieving the pressures from the world, etc. The main journey, the ordeal is happening inside. And that is why so many of us struggle with sila. We sometimes keep them, sometimes we do not. And then we feel remorse and now we're back into that tornado. Drop everything, drop the remorse, take the sila again and forget about it. Just, just keep moving, smile, put a big smile on your face and keep doing your work. So, uh, so again, the grasping is referring to the ayatana, the, the six senses uh, and their, 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 their objects. So the, uh, the, the upadana or the grasping or the attachment or the second noble truth has everything to do with what we see, what we observe, what we're witnessing and the objects basically of what the eyes are capturing, even the thoughts. We can become attached to the Dhamma even. And that's one of the reasons why even an Anagami cannot become an Arahant. If they are holding on even to the Dhamma. That's why on their, you know, when they die, they will go to the pure abodes instead of 
becoming full-on arahat at the expiration of this life. Why? Because even the Dhamma has become for them uh, not a grasping, uh, a gantra. And uh, this is the way to be released from the world. This truth which I declare to you, this in itself is the way you seek to be freed from all suffering. So Lord Buddha is repeating, like, this is what I told you, but this is what I, you know, basically you're asking me, Hemavata, if there's another way of emancipation. And my answer to you is always going to be the same. There isn't. This is the only path to awakening, the Four Noble Truths. So don't keep asking me about something else. Maybe it could there be something else? No. Too much learning and not doing, which was Hemavata's past life all about, is not going to get him. He needs to practice the Noble, noble Eightfold Path. Now, as a yakka. Um, What also is happening at this point is uh, the two friends are listening along with their Yakka friends, uh, disciples, and uh, Lord Buddha is giving them the discourse on the Dhamma. One thing that I think we need to stress all the time every time we come across Lord Buddha giving a discourse, is the fact that he so generously provided the Dhamma in whole, in completion, with the intention of having this person have a chance to even become an Arahant. Not just Magga, but Arahata Pala, the fruition stage of Arahantship. That is the intention behind every single Dhamma discourse that Lord Buddha gave. Remember Bahia? He gave such a short, short, short statement. But even that was so full that it helped Venerable Bahia become an Arahant right on the spot. So there is, you know, there, there is a scene that um, I think it's from Mingun Sayadaw, or, or, or uh, I think it's from him, uh, if not Mahasi Sayadaw. But there is an image that they use where they say, imagine a king feeding his son, the crown prince, and uh, the, the child is opening his mouth and the father is give, feeding him rice. The father is giving him full on the rice, but the child might pick up a few grains of rice from that mouthful, from that morsel. And, the, you know, that's, that's how much the child took. And the child will chew it and, and gulp it down. But the father had given him the full morsel. Lord Buddha always gives the full morsel of the Dhamma in completion. It is us, how we take it, that can allow us to, if we have the merits and we're really intent on being fully available and faithful to it, allowing it to land and be absorbed, land on one of the four stages of, of nobility. And this was the case with Hemavata and Satagiri because they become uh, Sotapannas at this point 
in the discourse, along with their 1,000 Yucca students. However, the reason why I brought the morsel of food or morsel of Dhamma is because Lord Buddha gave them the Dhamma in full with the, in, uh, with the hope that, if you will, that they become Arahants, but they became Sotapanas because that's how big their mouth was or mouths were. They took in only that much. So when we listen to Dhamma talks, when we listen or when we read the Dhamma, when we are being absorbed in it, it has everything to do with how much we make ourselves available, how much we're giving. This path takes a lot of effort. Yes, sometimes you have individuals like Kali who get up on the terrace and boom, they hit Sotapanna. <laughs> but we don't know her past lives. As far as we're concerned, we must put effort. For over 25 years, if not more, Venerable Ananda did not strive as much as he could have. And that's what Lord Buddha and Venerable Sariputta always urged Sari, uh, uh, Venerable Ananda to do, but he was negligent. He didn't put enough effort to meditate, to dedicate himself to it. Enough. It only took Lord Buddha to die, to go into Parinibbana, to really instigate, to start that fire burning in him, that sense of urgency. That is something that we owe. If we want to become Arahants, that needs to be the case for each of us. No longer looking for shortcuts. So, um, but being Hemavata himself, you know, he's, he's very curious. He's like, okay, what is the distinguishing factor then between a, a, a Seka and an Aseka? Seka is a noble disciple in training. Aseka is a noble uh, disciple beyond training, meaning an Arahant. Um, so he asks, who in the world can cross the great flood? Excuse me. Asked Hemavata. Who in the world can cross the bottomless ocean? Who, with no support or any footing, ferries on undisturbed, never sinks into the deep? And the blessed one said, He who always lives with virtuous behavior and understanding, Sila and Panya, the wise one, who is contented and ever mindful, constantly reflecting on the level of the mind's release is the one who goes beyond the flood that is so hard to cross. Reflecting on the mind's release, the level of the mind's release, that means always checking in to see where you are at. Not telling lies to yourself, but checking and seeing, okay, how is the mind quality? How am I able to bring in the fruits of my meditation into my daily life? How is my interaction with you? Am I getting as easily irritated as before? Oh, so there's like a few pauses, a few moments of like a gap where I used to jump in and say something. I would interrupt someone. I would be angry, uh, angry at someone very easily. So Lord Buddha is talking about here the three higher trainings that need to be happening. This is not just basic sila, pancha sila that we take or 
observable sila, or like in the case of a monk, 227 rules. This is beyond that, meaning the person has taken sila and put it in his heart. They will be sila. They are sila. Everywhere they look, there's not a moment's gap. If there's a thought, not a word, but not even an action, but a thought of a memory of something that they did in the past, even in present life. Let's say they indulge in sexual misconduct and a memory comes to them of that act from them in this present moment. They will be watchful to see if there is any kind of craving or longing, nostalgia, anything in the mind towards that memory of that past action, which was unwholesome. So they are always doing the checking, not for anyone else to see. This is very personal. This is when it becomes adisila, higher training of the mind. And the mind, uh, I mean, a uh, higher training of uh, within in virtue. I'm sorry. The second one is higher training of the mind, which is adichitta or adisamadi. This is sila samadhi panya. The higher trainings of these are adisila, adichitta, and adipanya. That's the third one. So a person who has these three, thing, three things within them developing, and this comes, by the way, through constant, constant sati and panya. This is when it becomes maha sati and maha panya. If you recall, I've mentioned Ajahn Mahabhuva and especially Ajahn Man, his teacher. And when, when uh, that incident of when a person comes and says uh, Ajahn, uh, which means teacher, by the way, uh, in Thai, um, in, in, in Pali, it's Acharya. So in Thai, it's Ajahn. So then he says, Ajahn, is it true that you only keep one precept? Remember, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. And Ajahn Man says, yes. How could that be? You're a monk. You're a bhikkhu. You're supposed to keep your 227 rules. How can we? He says, I keep the one very, the most important rule. The mind, he says. That is the most important sila, which we neglect. So this is the thing which in, in conjunction with, in collaboration, in constant uh, uh, accompaniment of uh, vipassana practice, they work together. They in fact blend. Sila becomes an opportunity for the person to be practicing samadhi and vipassana, by the way. You do not see them being separate at this point, at this stage. He who is disgusted by perceptions of sense pleasures, who has broken all the fetters and is completely done with seeking any kind of rebirth, it is he who does not sink into the deep. Then uh, Hemavatadayaka exclaimed, Behold, the one with deepest wisdom, the one who penetrates by seeing the subtlest of meanings, he who possesses nothing nor clings to anything belonging to the senses, it is he who is free in every respect wherever he goes. The great recluse walking the path of the noble ones. This is now he's giving accolades respect um, towards Lord Buddha. 
behold, his, his questions are done basically, uh, the one with the unparalleled name, he who sees the subtlest of meanings, the giver of wisdom, unfettered to the realm of the senses, gaze upon him, the all-knower, the wisest of beings, the great recluse, walking the path of the noble ones. It was indeed a fine sight for us to behold this day, a lovely dawn, beautifully arisen. For we have now seen the perfectly awakened one who has crossed the flood, having liberated himself from the mental contaminants. Blessed one, now all these powerful and mighty yakkas, 1,000 in number, all go to you for refuge. And from today forth, Lord, you are our peerless teacher. From village to village, we will now roam, and from peak to peak, while paying homage to the perfectly awakened one and the sublime truth of the Dhamma you teach. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. That is the Hemavata Sutta. Uh, I hope it was uh, enjoyable to listen to and uh, allowed us some thoughts um, and, and encouraged us or is, is encouraging us, inspiring us because we need inspiration. So if you have any questions, please, uh, or comments, um, just unmute yourself so you can speak. Go ahead. Go ahead, Patissa. Thanks very much, Mante, for the talk. Um, I just uh, I was just wondering whether you could um, elaborate on the differences between yakas, uh, devas, asuras, mm. or even gandapas, or other beings um, that uh, the suttas say that reside in plants, trees, or the ocean, or on earth. Thanks very much. Mm. Um, surely I'm not an authority on, on the subject uh, however I will do my best uh, um, uh, the, the subject of yakas, devas, things I always elected to stay away from as, 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 a, as a practitioner uh, over the years for well since I started uh, my journey um, in the earliest days, uh, I chose not to, because I would see them, I would just say, yeah, 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 sure. Because I was very much science, uh, you know, my education was science-based, uh, um, being artistically inclined, but I was also a teacher of science. So I felt that if I could not test it, I could not feel it, touch it, empirically observe it, it's really pointless for me to talk about it basically. And plus what, how is that relevant to my love of the Dhamma, the studying of the Dhamma or curiosity in knowing about the Dhamma. And, uh, but I would study it. So um, as part of the different schools or curricula that I had to follow and et cetera. But as one practices, 
there is more validity to many of the things that we come to experience or, or, or encounter in the suttas. So without divulging too much, uh, it's, it's just uh, one, I encourage every one of us to practice uh, because these things, like earlier I was saying about the Buddha eye, for example. Yes, we can all relate with the observable eye, the biological anatomical thing here, the eyeball. Uh, you know, rods and cones, all these things behind it that allow us to see, etc. We can relate to that. But the other eyes, I don't, we don't know about, we don't care about. Well, at least to leave some room open instead of saying that's, that's impossible, which I sometimes see in secular Buddhists happening in the world, which is a sad, unfortunate um, uh, reality. Um, Purana Kasapa was one of them, by the way, so it's not even Buddhist being of that mindset. So I really had to tackle and be, you know, challenge that resistance that I had towards devas, the presence of other beings. And just to leave a crack in the window, as it were, a door open for possibilities and let the experience itself of the Dhamma reveal those to the person. So that has been my attitude. And like the Dhamma itself, it is Timeless, yes, but it is also, um, it is well expounded, you know, Svakato, but it's also Sandittiko. You can bring it in, you can taste it, you can try it, you can understand it for yourself. And that is what my encouragement is here. That's what I'm trying to do by using all these words um, to convey that feeling. So, having that trust that faith develop while you're practicing while you're dedicating yourself to the dhamma is a fact which enables the person to really come and feel and see the devas in different ways and same goes with other beings so coming back to your specific question if, if, if there's you know like how do they like what's the buddhist cosmology if you will well, the Buddha did not construct a new cosmology. It was there already. It was constantly being reworked by, uh, you know, there were no Hindus, but for this convention's sake, we use in the Hindu culture, Brahmanic culture. Uh, there was already a structure of, of, of cosmology that would be getting, you know, added on to. Uh, and and uh, but there was this eternal flavor added always there. So the devas would live forever, especially the Brahma gods, the Mahabrahma, etc. That is what Lord Buddha had to uh, change, which is a huge and drastic, dramatic change because it changes everything. Because you have suttas like in the case of Baka, Brahma Baka who thought of himself as timeless, eternal being, unchanging, all-knowing, omniscient. And there's some whimsical situations that happen and he can't even figure out that where Lord Buddha is because there's a challenge that he, he presents and Lord Buddha says, sure, 
you know. So he keeps walking chunkam over this Baka Brahma's head. And if he says, if you're all knowing, you should know where I am. And he tries different universes looking and looking and he couldn't find them. And he says, okay, I give up. I give up. You win. Where are you? He says, I'm overhead. Just look up. Because all this time I was walking meditation in Chankama, but you didn't even know. Oh, great one. So that eternal rug was pulled from under the feet of the Indian cosmology. So in comes the, 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 the Buddhist cosmology. And there are different categorizations. So the lowest realms, uh, sometimes they mention only three, sometimes they mention four. Um, the woeful uh, states uh, uh, to that beings sooner or later will get to be reborn into. The first one are the Niraya or the hell realms. There's different realms within the hell realms themselves, some far worse than others, but they're all bad. Um, um, and they last in some cases, like in the case of Venable, who um, was Venable, Devadatta, for example, he's gonna be spending there a whole eon. Um, and Ajahn Mahabua, seriously, not jokingly, mentions how uh, there are many bhikkhus and bhikkhunis in the hell realms. Many bhikkhus and bhikkhunis will not like this. But hey, it doesn't come from me. <laughs> it's coming from Ajahn Mahabhua. Um, this to play along with that theme of that bhikkhu who was getting away with breaking the rules because of the clout that he had, the renown and the fame, something to think about. So it's not, not for Buddhists, basically. So that's something that I'd like to mention and stress. So uh, above the hell realms, you have different realms. So you have the hungry ghosts, for example, or the petas. In the Janusoni Sutta of the Anguttara Nikaya, um, Janusoni approaches Lord Buddha and asks about when they make offerings for uh, or merits, um, whether it's food, this and that, can these merits go to people who are alive, people who are in higher realms, or etc. So, in a nutshell, after Lord Buddha addresses all those questions, he brings it back down to the most absorbent, if you will, accepting. Um, realm for these punya or merits from us, from beings. And that happens to be the peta realm because many of them are gonna be in that, in the, in that realm of hungry ghosts or miserable uh, spirits, sometimes they're called, for a long, long time. And while let's say if they are freshly dead, you know, like they just died, they have their cousins, their relatives alive, those cousins and relatives could still remember them and make offerings. However, in most cases, uh, if not usually, um, what happens is their relatives die before uh, they, these spirits um, reappear in a higher realm. And they will stay there for a long, long time, suffering from hunger, misery, uh, by the way, all of which comes from 
the desire to keep uh, a lifetime of greed, accumulating things, uh, hoarding things, and only wanting it for myself or for my those people that I consider to be close to me. So all these people you see, you hear about these wealthy, wealthy bankers and things, uh, royals or government heads who, who basically come up with rules that in no way benefit humanity or anyone for that matter, um, who keep amassing these enormous fortunes Unfortunately, many of them are going to be ending up there unless something happens in them in themselves so that they can change the trajectory because their tra trajectory is taking them straight to the Peta realms. The problem again is that they will be there for a very long time without anyone to offer them food. Now, one of the reasons why they are in misery, they hang around near cemeteries, near garbage cans, near places uh, where there's refuse, there's things that are trash, um, because they cannot eat things um, uh, that are not being offered. Discarded things, they can go. But what do we discard? We discard trash, discard bodies. Sometimes with the bodies, there's some food here and there, water. And the image that usually uh, traditionally is represented is they have the mouth that is as small as a pinhead, but the stomach that can be as large as a mountain. And they are starving. And they are in absolute misery. So they're out of hell. Somehow after eons, they come out of hell, but they're still in a different form of hell, if you will. Now, another question might happen, uh, might come up is, well, do these people trans like drop one rung at a time, if you will, from one level down uh, in sequence or, or and going up the same way, like from a hell to a peta realm and then up to maybe a human? Not necessarily. It depends on the person's merits coming to a fruition, uh, the vipakas. Next, we get to the, um, um, the asura or the demons uh, realms, and, um, and then we get to the animal realms. The animals are the ones that um, we can relate to. We can see most of the animals. There are some animals we cannot see. We need uh, special microscopes or even electron microscopes to penetrate and see them on the surface of skin, let's say, uh, on, on the epidermis or something. But they're there, uh, microbes, um, things like that. And including some large animals like a gorilla, for example, uh, scientists, uh, zoologists in Europe uh, laughed at the prospect of uh, uh, there being a gorilla or even an orangutan in Thailand or in Burma or in, um, um, places in those countries, because they thought these were just legends. They were alive, but we didn't see them as, you know, for example. So some because we don't see them, that doesn't mean that they don't exist. So we can use that in connection to other realms that we don't see, but they're there. Um, so the animal realms, and then we get to the human realm, and that is the Goldilocks 
area. That is the area, that's the sweet spot, if you will, because we have, unlike the other realms, uh, yes, the animal realm does get plenty of, uh, depending on the animal's uh, karmic vipaka, they have a chance to get plenty of pleasure also, in addition to the pain and the suffering because they're part of the lower realms because there's a lot of delusion. Uh, animals can make good karma too, however. The other realms cannot. But again, this has to be part of that animals, the, the, the nature of the animal, the, the species of the animal, all play a part in it. Um, however, there are certain animals that are, they, they can only live by killing. If the person or the being is born into such a realm in that, into that species, the length of time that that being will be spending as that animal will be, or even in the animal realm is gonna be a lot longer than let's say a chicken. Actually chicken also eats earthworms. So uh, another animal, let's say a bee, a butterfly. Uh, so, uh, so because there is a breaking of precepts because that being is harming and killing another being for its sustenance, yes. But if you're the other being who's being eaten, well, it's not a pleasant experience, is it? So it's going to keep that animal in that realm. So it's not like, okay, it's a one-shot deal. We just go and we come back after that lifetime is over. Nothing like that, in fact. Many, uh, many uh, people, many beings, sattas or sentient beings who fall into these lower realms will stay there for a very, very, very incalculable amount of time. So um, that's another reason why we can't just talk about samsara in passing and say, oh, it's, it's, it's just, you know, I'll be a bodhisattva and I'll become a Buddha one day. Well, hold on. There was a reason why Lord Buddha always emphasized the importance of cutting the bridge into these lower realms. And the best, the only way you could do that is by becoming a, at the very least, a sotapanna with magga, with the path, attainment of sotapanna, meaning having the Dhamma I happen. And that is where the practice has to be utilized in the person's life through sila samadhi panya. These are not just terms. These are lifesavers that can cut us. And these realms do exist coming back to what I was beginning to use as a preamble for in trying to answer this question. These realms do exist. They are not just legendary mumbo jumbo like some Buddhist scholars keep talking about this and that, which I think they're doing more harm than good and, and corrupting the sasana because they are meddling with the teachings of Lord Buddha because the Dhamma is not some, we don't have the luxury to take out, pull out things that we don't like and put in things that we like. No. We're not going to be as lucky as Hemavata and Satagiri otherwise to even be reborn as Yakkas. It's going to be far worse destination waiting for us. So human realm has the potential, potential for having both pleasure and pain. Basically, it is tolerable. 
in sometimes in some time periods of human history it can be more pleasurable than painful nowadays it's more leaning towards the painful as i think most of us could agree being born as a human on this planet and by the way there's other planets other uh, systems that have human beings um, based on this cosmology structure. Next, we get to the Deva realms, the lowest earthbound devas and uh, um, the Maharajika uh, devas, the Maharajas, uh, the Chatu Maharajas, uh, the, the four great kings that show up oftentimes. And they were there in the sutta that I mentioned briefly today, Atanatiya sutta. And I think, uh, yeah, Atanatiya for sure. And um, they are the four guardian kings. And uh, one is the, uh, the guardian king representing the loka devas, the uh, worldly devas. And there's the uh, yakka god. Uh, basically, he would be the god of today's uh, protagonists, uh, if you will, uh, Satagiri and Himavata. There is the naga god. And there is the uh, uh, Kumbanda god, uh, different categorizations of, 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 of gods. And these are at the lowest level, if you will. They're still much higher than humans. They live for a very long time. I think the equivalent of 9 million years is the average lifespan uh, for these devas. Now, uh, each of these, uh, like they have their own caste system, if you will, uh, as in the, the yakas have their own, just like they have the subordinate yakas uh, or the devas, they have their own subordinate devas, uh, lower level. Um, um, let's say you have the uh, Gandharas, um, um, Gandhabas, Gandhabas. And they are, let's say, musicians and, and more, you know, in the courts of these gods. That's, that's how they say. Um, they like music. They like poetry. You can actually see elements of this in Greek mythology, uh, where there's a lot of uh, wine drinking, celebrating, constantly partying, uh, sex, all these things, sense pleasures. These realms, especially, because they've cut loose from the human realm and they have a lot more that they can experience, they're jumping on it, okay? They're really, really enjoying it. And because the pain is much less, if any, at this point. And then you go higher and higher and higher. Uh, I won't be able to list them all um, because I don't remember them all. <laughs> Uh, but uh, the closest one after them is the Tavatinsa heaven, which uh, is the, um, the realm of the 33 gods, primary 33 gods. And that is where Lord Sakka or Indra lives. And that is where we also have a special uh, uh, reliquary or, or a place that they have built a special stupa, Lord Sakka built and the devas to house one of the relics of Lord Buddha. Um, it's, it's there. And uh, some of the uh, uh, meditation uh, practitioners from Burma have uh, 
I don't know if that is true or not, but they um, attest to have, having gone and, and seen it for themselves. Again, these are things that were commonplace at the time of Buddha to go to the Deva realms and come back. Um, you know, um, only a few centuries ago, well, actually today, people are still saying we live on a flat earth. So in the old days, you know, that when, when Columbus or other people or the Vikings, even before him, they used to travel and they would go to places that other people would not even imagine. And if even if someone said that these places existed on this planet, they would completely shun it or even burn you at the stake probably for saying such things. So, but these things nevertheless existed and these, so how far we expand, how far do we push the envelope and are willing to go ahead and go to distance and explore them through mind practice. And it's there for us to see and to experience these realms and these beings. And then you go further up and there's, there's Tushita heaven and there's higher realms and there's realms that, uh, and you're going basically, um, there are three lokas, tilokas, they're called, Lord Buddha talked about, Kama loka, Rupa loka, and Arupa loka. Kama loka is the desire or, or sensual realm, and it could be painful or pleasure. So anything that senses pleasure or pain and, and driven by that seeking of pleasure is within the confines of Kama, sensuality. And we fall into that category as well as animals and, and also a big chunk of the Deva realms. Now, as they're going higher and higher, you get to the realm that is where Brahma realms begin. And that is where we stop from the sensual or Kama realms. And we are now in the territory of Rupa Lokas. Rupa meaning they have form. Um, beauty beyond measure but there isn't like carnal pleasure seeking after that so it's a lot more refined um so uh so it's it's more about mano mind based and this is where we also have the gradations of the jhanic practices meaning the brahma viharas if a person practices brahma viharas brahma brahma gods so we are basically talking about the qualities, mental, or uh, even some people said emotional qualities of Brahma devas or Brahma gods that the person manifests in their life when they're doing, let's say, metta practice, karuna, mudita, and upekka, which, by the way, as you notice, it's gradually becoming more and more refined. Upekka. And that is the state that these uh, beings or higher Brahmas, uh, not the highest, because there is still delusion there. There is delusion because even Brahma is in the territory, the realm of Mara. Even Brahmas. You have religions out there all over the world that worship this God or that God. Well, basically, they're all in the hands of Mara. They're gods. If it's Mahabrahma, whatever, 
they're in the hands of Mara because you have even uh, suttas where you see Brahma gods being deceived by Mara who just pretends to be one of the Brahmas and is saying, no, you're greater than this Buddha. Who is this Buddha coming and challenging our Lord, our great Mahabrahma? And Lord Buddha turns to him and says, basically, be quiet, Mara, I can see you. Brahma is unable to see what's happening. Because the only way we can penetrate through and go beyond the realm of Mara is if we have the insight, if we crack that veil. Even on top of the Brahma realms, when you get to the formless realms, Arupaloka, where you have the previous teachers of Siddhartha, uh, Alara Kalama and Uddhakaramaputta being reborn into. It's a vastly unimaginably long time period that they're going to be stuck in. In what? Delusion. Still. Now these 31, they make up 31 layers of existence. They are all the backyard of Mara. Even if you find the most beautiful heaven where every there's justice like up the walls, there's incredible justice, fairness, beauty, climate is beautiful, every animal is being respected, every this and every that. And people are keeping even sila, they have good conduct. But people were having good conduct even before Lord Buddha showed up. But there was no insight, there was no wisdom as such to penetrate through ignorance. And that is what distinguishes this path. That's why I was saying initially when we sat today, let us not look for that warm hug as the all in all, that the, that's the, the goal of our life, to reach that state of happiness. No, then what's the difference between our path and any other path out there? or anyone who even doesn't even have a path. Because everyone wants to feel comfortable, cozy, yeah, happy, this and that, perfect world. No, this world was never meant to be perfect, period. Use it wisely. That's what Lord Buddha said. He suffered from physical ailments, you know. Jivaka would always come. Jivaka was his physician. He would come and give him uh, things for, for purging because he had sickness belly sickness. He would have these problems, you know. And then at later time in his life, he had terrible, terrible backache. But how was the mind? Just like Hemavata was asking, how is your Buddha's mind? Does he like the comfy bed versus the, the hating the ground, the firm wooden bed? The good food over there that that rich person is going to offer tomorrow with the nice milk rice and this and that, all those delicious curries versus this gruel, this oatmeal that's dirty, that's got these tiny little pieces of you know wood in there stuck that this poor person barely was able to gather and he's actually starving his own family to make sure that he can gather and give to Lord Buddha. That takes wisdom. That penetrates through all these realms. Yes, the realms are important so far as 
we're using them to anchor ourselves in the Dhamma. As your practice develops, you will become sensitive to the devas. Some might actually see devas. I haven't seen them, just to make sure. But there's different ways of sensing, understanding, and knowing. And you could develop the ability to even see and communicate with the minds of devas and even see the minds of devas, even when they're not aware that you are. Just like they're doing to us. There are devas who are so highly tuned to the Dhamma. They are so, they're Arya, they're noble disciples of Lord Buddha. They are watching because there aren't that many people who are seriously practicing the Dhamma, genuinely, humbly practicing. And they're so eager, they're so interested to find them. And they will go across galaxies, universes, in split second just to be there and see and be around and comfort and protect and also whisper some dhamma into your ear. There are devas like that. And there are devas who are also checking to see how well you keep your sila. Not to judge you, not to point, not it's not a punitive like Judeo-Christian, you know, I'm gonna bolt lightnings and things like that. No, none of that in the dhamma, again. But they're curious to see how pure is your heart. They're just curious because they can see us. Just like some animals, if you go deep into the ocean with the submersible, there are some animals that you can see their internal organs. Like some jellyfish, even we see it near the surface. You can see the heart, you can see the different anatomical structures of the body because it's translucent, it's transparent. They have the ability to see our mind. That's why when a person says so many things, this and that, the devas might have a different opinion about that person. That person might be having millions of followers around them, but the devas don't want to touch him because hell no. It's like, no, 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 no. The Dhamma is this way, you're opposite. So the, de the devas have such a powerful place in the Dhamma Sasana. We cannot extract them, extrude them, extricate them, remove them, whatever. And they're also practitioners. And many of them were present when Lord Buddha taught. Remember, Lord Buddha gave a portion of his nightly time period to the devas, to teach the Dhamma to the devas, to converse and to ask questions. And many suttas we have thanks to the devas which later on Lord Buddha recounts to Ananda and or to the other bhikkhus and they will uh, have it be encoded into the uh, Nikayas. So um, I hope that helps. So our objective is not to be reborn in the heavenly realms. <laughs> uh, our objective first and foremost is to first break, destroy that bridge that connects us. Because you might be doing good deeds for many, many lives or for the rest of this life and you will get so many merits, fine. Even giving metta, fine. But as long as there hasn't been that breakthrough of wisdom, 
the door to the lower realms is wide open because we don't know what negative vipakas are waiting for us because we have been around forever. We've done so many horrific things, even though the person might say, oh, look at me, I'm such a big supporter of the Dhamma. Look at me, I've, I've, I've taken my bodhisattva vow. I'm good, I'm this and that. Well, yeah, yeah, but you're just looking at the tiniest little small piece of the jigsaw puzzle. You don't know what you've done in the past, whether you've killed your parents, your children, your mother, your father, or millions and millions of people like many people are doing now to the world without realizing the consequences of their actions because they are simply blinded by greed. But that is not the objective if we go back to Lord Buddha's teaching. I don't know how long time I have. That is what I encourage each of us to say. Let me cut that bridge sooner than later. And once I know it's cut, you will know, by the way, because you will have the Dhamma eye, that certainty that is unmistakable, unshakable faith in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, unshakable. But that shouldn't even be the end either. You have to go all the way. While you're alive, sh shoot for that star. <laughs> And you will get it. It's not a far star. It's actually pretty close. So uh, I would like to leave you with those thoughts. And uh, I hope that was helpful or satisfactory on some level. Okay. Uh, I'm going to have to stop today's session. <laughs> I'm a bit exhausted. Uh, but uh, please feel free if you have uh, questions, individual, uh, email them my way, please. And I will do my best in answering them. Uh, um, so let us share some merits. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. I hope today's uh, talk was helpful and um, yeah, I'll try to edit so that I can put the background information first because it was not recorded. I had forget, forgotten to put, hit the record button. Uh, so I'll see you next week and uh, we will resume our uh, two hour meditation for next week. Thank you. And uh, may you have a safe week and uh, may the triple gem bless you all and your loved ones and practice, 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 practice with diligence. You're not going to get it otherwise. It's not going to be handed to you. Sorry to say. It's not a lottery ticket that you're going to win. We're not going to presume that we are Kali, like that lady at the terrace. No. 
if Venerable Ananda did not struggle and push and push and push, be on it with sati, sati, sati. Be on it with panya, on it constantly as if life depends on it, because it does. Then it's not going to happen. It was never going to happen to Venerable Ananda, but it did just because he put that effort that day. And right before he put his head on the pillow, right when he was in the sitting posture and he was about to lay down before his head, his bald head touched the pillow, he became another one. But all the work that he had put, walking meditation, sitting meditation, standing meditation, walking meditation, sitting meditation, standing meditation, that, we need to look at more carefully and apply that because the Dhamma is alive despite what's being done around us. You can only save yourself and that's what we're doing. But while you're doing that, you can shine ablaze the world around you and create this joy thanks to your sila samadhi panya and turning them into adisila, adicitta, adipanya, where you become the Dhamma, your life becomes the Dhamma. And that's a beautiful thing, I think. So be well, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>